0: Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah.
1: Live from AltSpeed Technologies, the show that puts you the listener in the driver's seat because you are the content. The phone lines are open to be a part of the program. It's a free call, 1-855-450-NOAA. It's one 450 6624 And give me a call, and we'll have a conversation about your tech questions or business and tech questions. Linux Advocate, above all else, small business owner, now host of the only radio show centered around you, the listener. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. My name is Noah Chalias. Good evening to you all. Happy to be here with you on the 20th episode of the Ask Noah show the final episode before we institute some of the changes we've been talking about. We'll get into that more towards the bottom of the hour. So happy to be here with you tonight. We have a great show lined up for you guys. I want to kick off the show tonight by answering a question that has come in over Facebook. Now, I want to be clear. I, I have heard a lot of you voice your opinion that we need to have more questions answered via email and text and Facebook. And, and I want to be clear that. I rely on your phone calls to make this show happen. Now I'm happy to take this show in any direction that you, the audience, wants because, after all, as we said at the opening of the show, we put you, the listener, in the driver's seat. But that said, I mean, there are some practical ramifications to doing the show, right? Like if I'm going to go here and I'm going to do an audio, you know, a radio show, talk radio show, I have to have somebody to talk to. Hence the word talk radio. So. If at all possible, we'd encourage you to give us a call at 855 no, 450 That's 855-450-6624. But if you can't, live at AskNoahShow.com. And if you're international and you're looking for a way to call toll-free into the U.S., you can sign up for a free Skype account. Skype has clients available for Windows, Mac, and Linux and Android and iOS. And you can call us that way. Free account doesn't require you to uh, pay for anything, pay for any minutes, because we have a toll-free line. Charlie writes in, and uh, Charlie wrote in on Facebook, and he asks, I'm getting a motherboard this week, and I plan to move to Linux. Besides seeing some different guides on NVIDIA and AMD video cards, does Linux have a universal driver standard to install them? For example, on Ubuntu or Debian distros, I plan to install either Solus Mate or Linux Mint Mate." I've often found with using Windows that by installing the drivers from the third-party Realtek, Intel, 3Com, et cetera, chip manufacturers, provides better performance than the Asus Gigabyte-owned drivers. How do we download drivers into Linux and actually check that it's running? Um, so let's, uh, let's go through this question a little bit, because there's a couple things I want to clarify. So first of all, said, I'm planning to install Ubuntu Debian Distro's like Solus Mate or Ubuntu Mint Mate, uh, so um, Solus is its own thing. So I, I wouldn't I wouldn't install Solus with the expectation that you're going to run an Ubuntu-based distro. Uh, second of all, you said you're in, you're looking at Linux Mint Mate. Linux Mint is the cinnamon desktop on top of Ubuntu, and obviously, you know, some obviously a lot of customizations. Not all of which I agree with. I might add. Um, but I'm not sure what the advantage to installing the Mate desktop on top of the Mint distro would be exactly. If, if you were going to go with the Mate desktop, it, Mint is close enough to Ubuntu. And in fact, I think it would be advantageous to just use Ubuntu Mate, which is maintained by Martin Wimpress. And in my, my own personal opinion, um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a little bit better of a distro than, than, uh, than Mint. Um, so you ask, and so then you go on and you ask about the, these drivers, and you said, you know, usually it makes more sense to go get them from the actual manufacturer rather than the motherboard manufacturer, and that's true. And the reason that's true is because, you know, NVIDIA is going to release the latest drivers on their site versus whatever drivers shipped at the time that your motherboard shipped. So you are g- going to probably get a little bit better performance under Windows. Um, so, Charlie, thanks so much for taking the time to write in to the Ask Noah Show, and Charlie did that at facebook.com slash show, and you can too, Linux by default ships with open source drivers, and that will work fine for day-to-day use. So sometimes you might have a specific use case that requires you to what we call install a proprietary driver, and this is a driver that is released from the manufacturer where they did not release the source code that is in fact released with the drivers that ship with the operating system. So as you might imagine, there are some security concerns, some people have principal concerns with using such a driver, but most people who use them never really have a serious issue that I'm aware of. So let's start with the easiest way to install a proprietary driver under Linux. So I'm going to use Ubuntu with Unity as an example because it's the most popular Linux desktop distribution and applicable to the most users. What you're going to do is open the additional drivers uh, uh, tab, and that's uh, if you if you just uh, you hit the super key and search for additional drivers. A little green thing will pop up, a little circuit board. Click on that, and you should see a list of proprietary drivers that are not in use. And all you have to do is select the uh, radio button, and then click activate. With something like the NVIDIA driver, it's going to take a little bit to apply. And uh, n- but let's say for example you have some particular piece of software, Lightwork comes to mind. Or maybe you just want to run the absolute latest driver. But Lightworks, for example, I'll use that as an example. They recommend a specific version of the NVIDIA driver. Typically, it's later than the one that ships with Canonical. Now, you're mentioning you're considering using Solus and Mint, and this will definitively work on Mint. I've not tried it on distros like Solus, but it should probably work there as well. Both NVIDIA and AMD offer shell scripts that you can download directly from their site. So if you go to NVIDIA's site, click on the model number that you have, choose your operating system, it's going to direct you to a little script you can download. After after you download it, we make it executable. The easiest way to do that is to open a command prompt and issue the command sudo chmod, sudo space chmod, space plus x, and press enter. You can also do it right-clicking on it in properties and going to the permission and changing it to be executable, so on and so forth. But in order to actually install the script we actually have to drop out of our graphical environment because we can't install this graphical environment script with the graphical environment running. We're going to have to actually kill X. So to do that we'll press control alt F1 and then we'll type sudo space service space light dm space stop. And then you can actually once you're once you've actually killed X then you can go ahead and uh, run your script by typing dot slash and the name of the script and then the installation script should run and you'll have the latest version of the proprietary driver that you installed. Now, thanks. Thanks again, Charlie, for writing in really appreciate uh, you taking the time to do that. And I know that you've tried to get that question in a couple different ways and we haven't always been um, the most uh, responsive, but uh, again, I'm tr- We're trying to give preference to people that are calling in. All right. Our next guest that's coming up this hour is a gentleman who has been a huge part of the ASNOA Noah show since its launch. He's also helped out a little bit uh, at Ultraspeed Technologies, doing some remote work for us, and uh, he's a huge community member in the Ubuntu world. Joining us this hour is Mr. Simon Quigley from Wisconsin. Hi, Simon. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah. How are you all? Excellent. So first of all, thank you so much for your support of the Ask Noah show and for, uh, you know, staying in contact and, and always being willing to uh, to lend a helping hand and and uh, also kind of be my uh, my brain, so to speak, on, on certain days because I tend to forget things. Um, and I understand that uh, this week you have uh, you've really dug into a community issue and you wanted to come on the Ask Noah program and tell us about it.
2: Yeah, um, so I, I kind of want to get your opinions on on. Like I said, a commu- like you said, a community issue that you know Ubuntu's been having, and I wanted to see if what your thoughts were on it. So, um, if I if I could explain, so um, it, it, if if you could, if you guys listen to the um, Linux Unplugged show, you know Popey um, Alan Popey's a he's a Canonical uh, employee, you know an Ubuntu member, and so we, he recently wrote a blog post um, about the Ubuntu community and you know an idea he's proposing. So, want to talk with you and get your thoughts on it. So. Um community fragmentation in Ubuntu is a serious issue at the moment. And so there's more to the Ubuntu community than canonical employees and people who do paid work. Sure, a lot of canonical employees do a lot of work in the community, but there's people outside of that. And the fragmentation has sort of gone unaddressed and in general just not talked about. So um I want to get into sort of his post and what he was saying. So um he he wrote a he wrote a, a blog post about the subject and he sort of he sort of looked at, or he sort of explained what the existing resources we have in Ubuntu. Um, now, Ubuntu is a Linux distribution, so it has a community, and um, the community at one point it was it was very very vibrant. There was a lot of contributors, but you know over time it's it's sort of gotten fragmented. So um, he he writes that the Ubuntu community portal, which is a site you know that canonical made. Um, it's, it's sort of been the welcome mat for new people seeking to get involved in Ubuntu, um, but no ma- major updates have been occurred or have occurred recently. Um, so we, so we said, you know, he talked to some community members, um, and asked them basically, you know, what are their thoughts about the Ubuntu community portal and what are their thoughts on the fragmentation and he, he identified three key issues, um, that I think is really, you know, good to point out. Um, our onboarding process for new contributors is not straightforward or easy to find. Contributors find it hard to see what's going on in the project, and there's valuable documentation out there, but no launch pad to find it. Um, a, sp- a prospective contributor has a limited amount of their spare time to get involved, and with poorly documented or hard to find onboarding process, they will likely give up and walk away. They won't know where to go for the latest news of what's happening in this development cycle, or how they can contribute their limited time to the project most effectively. It is important to get that, um, that they get that access to the community straight away. Um, I think Kopi's right. Um, I've been I've been in the Ubuntu community since July 2015. It's a little over two years. I can clearly see that these are, you know, valid issues that we face in the community. And when I say fragmentation, I mean that there are many teams within the Ubuntu that, um, and a lot of them still have wiki pages and whatever else up and running, but don't have any people driving the project. Mm-hmm. Surviving community only Ubuntu teams like Ubuntu Weekly Newsletter and some other teams have very little new contributors. There are some teams with a lot of traction, you know, Ubuntu Matei, for example, right? Ubuntu um, Budgie, some new flavors, but there's so many more teams that don't have a purpose or aren't active anymore that when a new person with a limited time could be confused as to where they help. Um so, so the way hope you want to do to address that is to to find one central spot for contributors to sort of collaborate within Ubuntu, and I think it's I think that's a good idea because you know we find that part of the fragmentation is that there's five million places to see what's happening in Ubuntu and what's happening in the development cycle. So, you know, this is this is an issue that Ubuntu is facing right now, and I wanted to get your thoughts to see is it something that. You know you you see a good solution for is the community hub something that you see is a good solution to fragmentation and you know is there some sort of do you, you see this besides Blue or mm-hmm.
1: yeah, I guess yeah so I guess here's my thought my thought is, and actually somebody just nailed this in the in the chat room. My thought is that. In general, first of all, I'd make this disclaimer: I am removed enough from the for, from any sort of code contributions. I'm not a developer; that's just not what I do. Um, I can go out there and sell the products and promote the products and get people using the products that you find people spend some, so many hardworking hours to, to produce. But I'm not the guy. I'm just that's just not me. I'm just not the guy in there contributing code and 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 participating in that way. Um, and. And so to that end, my I will always defer to people like you, people like Alan, who are going to have a better idea of what needs to change in those communities. That said, from an outsider perspective, what I have seen is there is an insane amount of not invented here syndrome, and uh, there's a gentleman in the chat room is just pointing it out right now. Is that you know a lot of people are quick to jump on canonical for not invented here syndrome, and then the, the very same sentence they will sit there and praise Red Hat for creating an arguably in sometimes anyway an arguably inferior product, but they did they you know they did a secondary effort, and you know this is a conversation that even Chris and I had talked about where if you look at the actual technical merits between Wayland and Mir, there's a ton of actual technical advantages to Mir. And yet all of us, myself included, jumped on the fact that Wayland was a, was the predominant platform. And so there were a lot of people that were working on Wayland. And so, you know, Canonical should have just, you know, shut up and jumped on board. Um, And, you know, I could make, I could go on, you know, list of examples. We could talk about, you know, Flatpak versus app, you know, versus, uh, you know, all, App image and all of these things. There, there are you know these competing standards. Um, that is where I see a big problem with the where that fragmentation comes from and and why people and I think it's a big reason why people don't don't uh, you know they 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 just don't they don't start they 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 branch off. Does that make sense? Am I, or, or am I totally off? I could be totally off.
2: Well, there's also parts of that, like, there's people who, who actually, you know, want to help contribute to Ubuntu, and, you know, there are some, there are some people that I, that I could see that get dri- driven off by Canonical's not invented here syndrome. You know, that's obviously something that's a thing. But there's, there's more in Ubuntu than just the projects that Canonical does that with. For example, you know, the flavors or stuff like that, and just general community projects that aren't necessarily Canonical-based. You know, there's, sure, there's a community around Snapcraft, but there's also a community around, I don't know, Zubuntu. So, um, yeah. yeah, so I, I do think, I do think you have a, you have a point there, but there's also some other things in the community that pe- some people don't necessarily see. And, you know, if somebody wants to come to the community and contribute, if, they, if somebody wants, actually says, okay, I want to go to Ubuntu and I want to help out mm-hmm. with, um, a community project, help out with the flavor, something like that. It's it's just fragmented it at this
1: point. Sure. Well, you are definitely one of the people that are helping out in that regard, and I, you know, I really appreciate you, Simon, taking the time to come on the program and and give us the the brief rundown and and uh, and, and give us perspective from a person who is actually, you know. In the trenches, so to speak, contributing codes. We really appreciate that. <clears throat> Again, phone number 1-855-450-NOAA. It's 855-450-6624. Give me a call and we will chat. Reggie is calling from Ohio. Hi, Reggie. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show.
3: Hey, Noah. How's it going? Hey, pretty good. How can we help today? I have a Lenovo V570 laptop that um, was given to me that I was going to repurpose and get to my niece. However... When trying to install Linux on it, because I really don't want her to have a Windows box, but um, I worked with Ubuntu 12.04. All the drivers were there. Everything worked fine. Perfect. It's an older laptop. But as soon as I tried to update it to Ubuntu 16.04, and I just did a, a nuke and pave and just reinstalled everything, found out that the backlight brightness keys didn't work on it. You couldn't go into the settings and change the backlight, and also the laptop refused to shut down or go to sleep. So I don't know how to fix that. I already tried to check the additional drivers, and the only thing there was uh, microcode for the processor. Sure. And that didn't solve the issue. I found a workaround for the backlight uh, by changing, I guess, some file, some config file to use Intel drivers instead of the AMD drivers that was installed or that it was pointing to. And that worked for the backlight, but it still wouldn't shut down. So I'm just kind of lost as to what to do next with this thing.
1: Yeah, for sure. So first of all, I'll just go out and say, so I just looked the thing up while we were sitting here on the air. It's not that old. I mean, it's a, it's a second gen i5 looks like, or i7, whichever one you got, but um, it's not that old of a machine. It should be more than capable of running 1604. Now I had an old Dell Inspiron and I had a very similar issue. 1204, I think actually at the time it was like 1004 worked great, 1204 worked great. And then when I got to like 1404, I couldn't even get the full screen resolution to to, to work anymore. Just, it just totally tanked. And I'm, I'm, I'd be lying if I had a good answer as to why that happens. I'll tell you what I did in my case, and maybe this will work for you. I actually jumped ship off of Ubuntu Ubuntu proper and went to a a spin. So in that particular, Dell Inspiron, I was using Dell XFCE. Um, Now, actually, Simon, hold on a second. Do we still have, uh, do we still, let me see here, see if I can pull this up. Miracle of technology, do this live on the air. No, we don't have them. Um, I was going to say, Simon's actually the release manager for Ubuntu, and that is a Linux distro that is specifically designed to run on not current hardware. And so it has a little bit lighter of resources and stuff, but they are going to be testing a lot of those uh, older hardware systems with that particular distro. In fact, he was actually explaining to me at one time, they actually test back like 10 years of hardware, like the last 10 years they they officially support or some ridiculous thing like that. Um, but that is something that, uh, that that's, that's the first thing I would try. Here's actually, no, that's the second thing I would try. If nothing else works, the first thing I would try is if you tried running the updates, I assume you have.
3: Yeah, I ran all the updates, and I also tried in the process running uh, copies of Fedora uh-huh. and OpenSUSE oh. and even elementary OS and Solus, and all of them had the same problem.
1: Really? Give me the list of problems again. Yeah. Is the backlight problem what, – what were the other two? I'm sorry.
3: The backlight keys uh, don't function, and you also can't uh, – change the backlight in the settings mm-hmm. and the computer refuses to shut down properly it hangs on shutdown and just gotcha. stays there forever and if you try to put the laptop to sleep it own not only won't go to sleep but it never wakes up until you hard reset it
1: okay so let me ask you this and I, i'm not sure if you tried this have you tried toggling the caps lock when when it when it hangs up when it shuts down
3: uh, no, try I didn't
1: even think about, try, try, yeah, it's kind of a weird thing. And again, this is one of those things that I just, this is the way I've always done it. I'm sure there's some kernel expert out there that's going to tell me that there's a way better way to figure this out. But the caps lock will toggle will tell you if the kernel is locked up or not and and if not you should be able to drop hit control alt left 1 and drop down to a terminal and see what is what process is hanging up because one of the problems that you have is when it hangs when it hangs up on shutdown a lot of times if you hard shut the thing off it dumps all the it never actually writes any of the logs and oftentimes it's very difficult to go back and try and figure out why the stupid thing hung up um, so if you can toggle the caps lock and, and it'll tell you if the system is still functioning, it's just some process in there. has hung up. That's, that's somewhere you can, uh, that that's one way you can, you can, you can solve that. But yeah, the, my, my, my best solution, my best suggestion for you is to use something like a uh, Ubuntu Mate. I might try that. If that doesn't work, love Ubuntu. If that doesn't work, Reggie, call me back and we will find an answer for you. I, I have a, I have a special place in my heart for older hardware. I love troubleshooting and getting stuff like that to work. Uh and so uh and we definitely don't want to send uh send anyone off as a Windows user. So you uh we'll make sure to get that working. Um Justin is calling from Indiana. Hi Justin, welcome to the Ask Noah show.
4: Hi Noah, how are you?
1: Excellent. How can we help today?
4: Well, uh I've got a bit of a interesting project here. I've I'm, I'm been looking into data security a lot recently, and with that has come uh, a lot of interesting suggestions for how to uh, secure the data um, at the network level, at the physical level, what I want to use for software, and all kinds of things. And mm-hmm. what I've come down to is I'm I I feel pretty good with managing an edge device using IP tables and UFW to manage local network stuff if it gets past the edge device and I'm down to how do I connect or how do I secure the data that I have physically on a box the best that I can even in the event of seizure and what I've the issue that I've come to is it seems like even with something like Lux the lowest common denominator is going to be a password and for anything that I'm using if I want to memorize it it's going to be easily brute forceable uh, with with the right stuff like i'm mm. talking server farm type stuff so what i've come to is i want to try and use a YubiKey with lux to strengthen that passphrase that i'm using so that i don't have to remember it but it's difficult enough that it makes someone else brute forcing it really hard but here's the crutch i know that a yubi key with lux is possible and I, but I wanted to ask you, do you know if it is possible to use a key that I have physically with me to authenticate against a Lux partition on a remote machine over SSH?
1: Hmm.
4: Um, well... What I've looked into so far mm-hmm. is uh, there's USB IP, which is something that's built into the kernel, and it will pass a local USB device over SSH by uh, converting all of the uh, I.O. stuff from the... USB port on my machine to TCP calls that go over SSH and it registers as a fully functional USB device on the server. What I don't know, and maybe you can tell me from your experiences, does a YubiKey in challenge response mode act as a standard USB device?
1: Yes, it does. Um, and so the question, the, the, really, the answer to your question is going to hang on whether you want this to work at boot time or if you want it to work. Uh, um just on a on a data partition that's sitting in the computer because boot time is infinitely more difficult because you have to get you have to uh, basically what you have to do is you have to get whatever API infrastructure you're going to tie to the Yubikey to work uh in at the grub level. And even if you, even if you did, so uh, let me back up. There are two ways you can do this. The first way you can do this is very simple. You can store a static password on your YubiKey and because the YubiKey will store it and you don't have to memorize it, you can make the thing 256, you know, characters long or 512, whatever you want. Um, And so you, in that example, what you would do is you'd store a very sophisticatedly long password on the YubiKey, you would stick it into your computer and when at the at the, at the appropriate time, it would act as a – key. when you push the button, it would act as a keyboard input device, and it would just type a gigantically long password for you, um, which is going to work in everything in, up to and including even like a Java-based web console, right? Because it's just a keyboard input mm-hmm. device. Um, so that's mm-hmm. way one you could do. The second thing you could do is you could look at a GitHub project called YubiKey-Lux, and basically what that does is it utilizes the YubiKey's U2F standard to – Access Lux, and if you're not familiar with the U2F standard, if somebody out there listening isn't familiar with the U2F standard, there are, the the best approach to security is an age-old method that I refer to as the ATM method. It's something you have and something you know. And everyone does this with their ATM card. When you walk up to an ATM, there are two things that have to be present. Something you have, your ATM card, and something you know, your ATM card pin. Now somebody can steal your ATM card physically and they still won't be able to access your funds because they don't have the something you know. Similarly, somebody could use a pair of binoculars and from afar capture the something you know, but they would be missing the something you have. So it is a very, very secure model for securing data of all types. And what the YubiKey is, is a small little $35 device, and I have one on my neck 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I also have one that sits inside of my laptop 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And what it does is it provides a what we call two-factor authentication, or the something-you-have-and-something-you-know security model to passwords. So instead of just typing in your password on a website, you have the something-you-have, which is the YubiKey. It cannot be duplicated. And the something-you-know, which is usually a PIN, or sometimes you just have a, a regular password. And so basically what Justin is asking is, how do we implement that 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 two-factor model into you know, this SSH thing? And what where we come down on this is that YubiKey, in their infinite wisdom, has developed a universal standard for talking. I, I don't know if they developed it or they just participate, but it's, it's called U2F, Universal Two-Factor Authentication. And basically, the idea is that everywhere that has offers passwords offers this particular kind of standard, and the YubiKey can participate. And there actually is a plugin for Lux for the U2F standard. Of course, the downside to that standard is it requires access to the Internet because it's using the YubiKey API to... Facilitate that whole thing. Now, if you're using just the data partition, that will be fine. If you have console access to your server and you want to use a long static password, that will work for you too. If you want to use some sort of method to transport a USB over IP, and th- there is a, a box that you can just buy um, called the spider S P Y D E R, and I'll have a link in the show notes, which is basically an IP KVM, and we use them all the time. We ship them to customers. And we tell them, plug this into the back of your computer, and then we can open a little Java web console, and we can physically access that computer as if we were sitting in front of it. I can reinstall uh, the operating system all the way from the BIOS. I can, uh, you know, whatever you need to do that you could do sitting in front of the computer, I can do from anywhere I have an internet connection. Does that answer your question? Mm-hmm. Or at least get you started on the right track? Uh, it does slightly, and I have one more. Uh, yeah, sure. Quick one. Yeah. Um, so...
4: It is a data partition because I, I wouldn't be able to access. I wouldn't be able to r- remotely restart the machine otherwise. Right. But uh, it being a data it being a data partition, that means I can get up to the system and I have SSH access. And so, my next question is: with something like um, YubiKey Lux, which I have looked at, that mm-hmm. authentication method requires uh, uh, Ubico being a, a middleman, so to speak, sort right. of. Uh, having something on their service, my question is: Are you? What do you know about the legality of that?
1: They, um, well, so first of all, that's in, not. In first of all, that I just want—I want to correct you. That's not entirely true. The the they publish the spec. You can go take and roll your own server if you want to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's not. It doesn't actually require okay. something. I mean, most people don't do that because it's very easy just to use their free service. But you don't have to. You can right. take the code and run it yourself. Okay. Yeah. And so, yeah. and yeah. And, t- and so to finish that up then too, uh, the, the, the biggest example, um, I actually, I don't know if I am at liberty to say that, but I'll just, I'll just tell you, there is a very large company that you have all heard of and uh, use their products and services all the time that has a very large YubiKey infrastructure and they do not use the, the YubiKey server. They, they roll their own. John is calling from Arkansas. Hi, John. Welcome to the Ask Noah show.
0: Hi, Noah. How are you doing? Pretty good. How are you, sir? I'm good. Um, I just had a kind of a random question. It's certainly not meant to be a flame, but sure. it's just something that I've been kind of curious about. So I, I see um, a lot of different bad press, I guess, for um, for Linux Mint, mm-hmm. and I know that I don't hear very many people that are, that, that really kind of talk about it. But then mm-hmm. again, on the other hand, from what I can tell, it's based off of the LTS Ubuntu until it goes between those. Uh, it tries to err on the side of making sure that the user's desktop is stable. Yep. And I'm yep. just kind of curious, what is the, why does it get such bad press? Because I know I've used it on a couple of machines. I love Matei. I love all the others, but I haven't really had any kind of problem with it. And sure. I'm just curious, is there something that I'm missing?
1: Sure. That's a totally fair question. Um, And again, I can't, I I obviously, uh, John, I can't speak for everyone, obviously, but I can tell you why I uh, am, am, why I have my reservations about it. And I can also tell you why I don't express those reservations, uh, you know, except for right now, I'm about to, because you specifically asked me to. And so I am now duty bound to give you my opinion, which I'm an expert on. So you're in good shape. Um, (laughs) Ubuntu Ubuntu, uh, 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 Mint. Linux, is a very popular version of Linux that's designed for beginners. And as you correctly stated, it very it highly favors stability and high, highly favors ease of use. I am not a developer and I don't play one on TV, but I'm friends with a lot of developers and they have dug deeply into a lot of the modifications that Mint has made. And... I am told by some people that I trust very, very much that there are some very dangerous things that are being done with Mint, um, and we have seen some examples of that bubble up to the surface just a couple of years ago, or a year ago, two years ago, or something like that. When their when their server got hacked, and they literally infected the image that users are downloading, and, and you know, and 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 pe- there's literally a compromised image that people were downloading and putting onto their computers voluntarily, I might add, um, and so those security concerns i i, I personally is my personal opinion that they have gone too far in the direction of ease of use and stability they have strayed too far away to the point that it is it it, it 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 may ultimately do more harm to users than good that said why don't i talk about that why am i not more passionate about protecting users from this i fundamentally agree with what the developers of linux mint are doing I understand that they have a mission and a goal set that they are trying to meet and that there's a reason why they don't do a lot of interviews and they don't talk to a lot of people because my impression of it is that they are not – they're not terribly interested in – you know th- th- why they could do a better job in this area or that area. They're focused on a very specific audience. They try to hit that goal. And frankly, for what they're trying to do, make a very approachable, easy to use operating system that very much feels and acts like Windows, I think they do a pretty darn good job. And I don't want, I think we have way too much uh, cr- over criticism in the Linux world. So I just try to stay away from it as best I can for the most part, unless, like, unless John from Arkansas calls up and asks me, why it is I, why it is I have some reservations and I have to tell you, but, but yeah, for the most part, I think it's a great distro. I think they're doing some really great things. I think they nail an audience that a lot of other distros have totally glossed over or missed. But I also think that that gap is now shrinking. If I take a new user and I sit them in front of mint and I sit them in front of Ubuntu Mate, I would argue with you. There's an especially, especially with their new panel system I would argue with you that there are very few users that are going to sit down with Ubuntu Mate with the Redmond uh, panel layout and Mint and are going to notice much of a difference. And both are going to be easy to use, and Mate is going to be far superior as it relates to security. Does that answer your question?
0: Yeah, it does. Like I say, I just I wanted to know from I wanted to know from somebody that I trusted what their opinion was as opposed to everything I read.
1: Sure. Well, I re- oh, wow, what a compliment. Thank you so much, John. I really appreciate it. And thanks so much for the call. We really appreciate having you on the Ask Noah show. Again, phones 855 450 Noah, 855 450 6624. And, uh, you know, a huge thank you to the, the, both the developers of Mint and the Ubuntu Mate project. Um, you know, both of you guys are doing a great job just in, in different ways. Hey, guys, Google has recently made headlines with an internal memo that's now going viral and it was released for all of us to read and learn from. We're going to dive into that here on the Ask Noah Show Gizmodo headline. Here's the full 10-page anti-diversity screed circulating internally at Google. A software engineer's 10-page screed against Google's diversity initiative is going viral inside the company. It's being shared on an internal meme network and Google+. The document's existence was first reported by Motherboard, and Gizmodo has obtained it in full. In the memo, which is a personal opinion of male Google employee titled Google's Ideological Echo Chamber, the author argues that women are underrepresented in the tech community not because they face bias and discrimination, but because of inherent psychological differences between men and women. We need to stop assuming that the gender gap implies sexism, he writes, going on to argue that Google's educational programs for young women May be misguided. The post comes as Google battles a wage dis- uh, 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 a, a, a uh, let's see. Here. This post comes from this post comes as Google battles a wage discrimination investigation by the U.S. Department of Labor, which has found Google routinely pays women less than men in comparable roles. Now James Damore opens his memo up with with this: People generally have good intentions, but we all have bias which we are, which are invisible to us. Thankfully, open and honest discussion with those that can disagree will help highlight our blind spots and help us grow, which is why I wrote this document in the first place. Now, this is something that I, Noah, have asserted numerous times on this program and every other program I've ever been on. We, as human beings, have bias, and it is egocentric to assume that any one of us can see something clearly without bias, like... We're the one person that can back up away from it all and look down and see the thing. The, the concept that somebody can separate themselves entirely from their environment, from their principles, from their beliefs, and from their confirmation bias, to me personally, I find that to be a ridiculous idea. There are some people that are more biased. There are some people that are more blinded by bias. There are some people that take heavier stock in confirmation bias. But we all, to a degree, have bias. And it's far more credible to me for a person to acknowledge that we have bias, be upfront and honest about what that bias is, and then we can have an open discussion and become enlightened to biases that we may not know that we have if we are willing to have a discussion with people we disagree with. James goes on to say, at Google, we talk so much about unconscious bias as it applies to race and gender, but we rarely discuss moral biases. Political orientation is actually a result of deep moral preferences, and thus biases. Considering that the overwhelming majority of social science, media, and Google lean left, we should critically examine these prejudices. Now this is interesting, because what he is saying here is very, very important. Morality is not something that we are all going to agree 100% of the time. It's not going to happen. We don't even agree on where we are to go to find morals, where we go to define morals. And if we can't agree on what the source of morality is, how are we ever going to agree on what morals are and then from that, what policies, how we can how we can police based on that? Now, certainly the vast majority of us would, would agree on some basic things like all humans are equal and murder is wrong and. But, you know, actually, so funny story, even in that example, there is a whole group of people right now on the East Coast that would that that would beg to argue that point, even that all humans are equal. I mean, they don't even want to agree with that truth. James continues to write. He says neither side is 100 percent correct. Both viewpoints are a necessity for a functioning society or in this case, a functioning company, a company too far to the right, may be slow to react, overly hierarchical and untrusting of others. In contrast, a company too far to the left will be constantly changing, deprecating much-loved services over diversity, its interest, or ignoring or being ashamed of its core business and overly trust its employees and its competitors. Now, that's interesting. That was interesting to me because what there again, what he's saying is that both sides have merit. And what we need is rational dissent on both sides. And... What's going to happen is when you have both sides articulating their given point, then we can find rationale and reason in the middle. When you have one side that's presenting one, one argument and the other side is either shamed or doxed or, or, you know, or silenced out of the discussion, now we don't have that counterbalance and, and, we, and we, we get lopsided. He writes, only facts and reason can shed light on these biases. But when it comes to diversity and inclusion, Google's left bias has created a politically correct monoculture that maintains its hold by shaming its dissenters into silence. And that's kind of what I was just talking about. And What's interesting is we, we almost, we, it's almost like we glorify the concept of shaming somebody who we disagree with when we the majority of us agree that what that person is saying is, is wrong, or, you know, is, is morally wrong, or we, we disagree with it, or, or we find it to be, you know, reprehensible. And those are the, the opinions that we don't even want to hear, much less discuss if they have merit or not, much less discuss how it relates in merit to, you know, to, to, to our viewpoint. And this is something we've talked about on the Ask Noah show before. The idea that when we think someone is wrong, we have to shut them down. We have to shut them up. And I took more than my fear of shla- flack last time uh, when a similar issue came up, and uh, if I were smart, I would just keep my mouth shut. I just, I, we wouldn't even talk about this. We would we'd just go back to talking about, you know, motherboards and, and drivers and stuff like that. Uh, but you know, these are important issues. And not only are they important issues, the idea that we should seek to shame or silence somebody because we disagree with them fundamentally goes against the very nature of open source. It fundamentally goes against the very nature then by extension of this show. Free speech, a free and open community, A community where everyone is welcome, everyone can participate together for common goals. That is the kind of community that we're seeking to, you know, build here on the Ask Noah show. He says, we all have biases and we use motivated reasoning to dismiss ideas that run counter to our internal values. Just as some on the right deny science that runs counter to the God is greater than humans is greater than environment hierarchy, for example, evolution and climate change. The left tends to deny science concerning biological differences between people, for example, IQ8 and sex differences. Thankfully, climate scientists and evolutionary biologists generally aren't on the right. Unfortunately, the overwhelming of, of humanities and social sciences lean left, about 95%, which creates an enormous confirmation bias and changes what's being studied, what maintain myth, like social constructionalism, and gender wage gap. And I know that this is somewhat provocative, um, but I'm also counting on the fact that because this is, you know, a major memo that was released from a major technical company, probably all of you have read this, and I'm not really saying anything new. But again, I want to point out that I don't necessarily share his views on, on everything he wrote in the memo. I don't necessarily agree with everything, and they're definitely not the views, they're not a reflection of the views on the networks that this program is being broadcasted on. But his point here is valid, right? There is a fundamental lack of dissent in a large portion of a given social group, and when that happens, bias becomes blind, discussions cease to exist, confirmation bias takes over, and what you're left with is an echo chamber. And echo chambers are rarely a good thing. The only purpose, the only good purpose an echo chamber serves is to build steam and momentum and, you know, if, if you have a bunch of people that are all like-minded and you're all in the same room and you have an echo chamber going, you can get a lot of steam off of it. And I've been in, involved with groups that do this. It works very, very well. You get people amped up, fired up, ready to go. Um, but it's not very good at moving the needle forward. And that's really what we're all trying to do here. He concludes with, I hope it's clear that I'm not saying that diversity is bad, that Google or society is 100% fair, that we should try to correct for existing biases or that minorities have the same experience of those in the majority. My larger point here is that we have an intolerance for ideas and evidence that don't fit a certain ideology. I'm also not saying that we should restrict people to certain gender roles. In fact, I'm advocating for quite the opposite. Treat people as individuals, not just as another member of their group. Tribalism. And that rings very true to me. This idea that we treat people as individuals, individual people with individual characters and quality. He's not saying, I'm not saying, we are not saying that, you know, females shouldn't be firefighters or females shouldn't program or code or anything like that. What he is saying is that what you find when you actually go and look at these things is you have some females maybe a large portion of females that when they sit down to write code, and there's actually a fantastic YouTube video about this. I'll try and find it and put it in the show notes. And basically what he talks about is what is the differences between female programming students and male programming students. What they find is males are perfectly okay to write something out there, make a mistake, make a big blunder off of it and then go, well, how how do I fix this mess? And then then start to come up and say, okay, we'll do this this way and that way. And this, this thing, whatever. And what he found was that a lot of his female students, they're very, very apprehensive about making a mistake. They're very apprehensive about showing somebody saying, you know, this is this is kind of what I have. This is kind of where I started. How do I finish? How do I fix this mess? They would just rather clean the slate and come over with a blank screen and say, well, how do I write this thing properly? And we can argue all day about why that is right. Maybe they feel, maybe there's a, you know, I was, I was talking with a, with a good female friend of mine about this article earlier today. I said, yeah, I'm going to go on the air. I'm going to talk about this. And uh, she works in a, in a, in a professional office environment. And she was telling me, she goes, you don't understand what some of these, what, what it's like, what some of these biases are like until you actually live them. Because in her role as a female professional, there are times at her office where she will, where somebody will call in and want to speak to the, a, a, the, the exact same position, but the only difference being that it's a male that holds that position and they want his input on it because they don't trust the input coming from a female. Now, if that's not, if that isn't bias, I don't know what is right. I mean, there's just, there's, there's just no comparing those two things. But, I, but you know, and so when you start looking at that, that kind of thing, you say, well, that, that is definitely, there are definitely reasons that lead up to, to to why these are problems. But to just not acknowledge that these issues exist, that these problems exist, and how do we move forward, and how do we fix the situation, first it acknowledges correctly identifying what the situation is to begin with and not just burying our heads and saying, well, this is just because, you know, uh, uh, Google hates women. So that's why you no know, women don't hold positions of power. That's why we don't pay them as much. No, let's dig into it. Let's ask the questions. And if the questions come up and it's just as, it is just as simple as there's just a lot of people that are biased against women that work at Google, then so be it. Let's take that as an answer and let's figure out how to fix it. But if that's not the answer, if that's not the reason, let's correctly identify the reason. So he concludes and he says, I uh, so yeah, uh, hope I'm you know 100%... Uh, my, yeah, here we go. My larger point is that we want to have... My larger point is that we have an intolerance for ideas and evidence that don't fit a certain ideology. I'm also not saying that we restrict people to certain gender roles. I'm advocating for it. The opposite treat people as individuals, just another member of the group. I read that. Again, he's not saying that one thing or the other is right. He's simply calling for discussion. And one of my favorite suggestions, because what he does after he breaks down what he believes to be some of the issues here, then he goes through and actually offers some concrete suggestions. And uh, my favorite suggestion that he makes is demoralize diversity. He says, as soon as we start to moralize an issue, we stop thinking of it in terms of costs and benefits and we dismiss anyone that disagrees as immoral and harshly punish those we see as quote-unquote villains to protect the quote-unquote victims. And that really some, I, I think if you don't read the, you should read the whole memo. Whether you agree with it or disagree with it. This is a rip and good read, and everybody uh, should read the memo. But if you're not going to read it, that statement right there kind of is the TLDR of his entire memo. And it is basically this, that kind of what I said at the beginning, when we don't have a defined set of morals, we don't have a defined source to take our morals from, then it's very difficult for us to make decisions based on those morals. And when we moralize an issue, we make it subjective. We take away objectivity and we stop looking at facts and figures and we start looking at, well, how does it all make us all feel? How do we make the most people feel the best? And that's not, I don't think that's a productive way to continue. James was ultimately fired for writing this uh, memo. There's a lot more to it. It's a 10 page memo and he dives into a lot of other stuff that I didn't think was, I didn't think was particularly relevant for this, this show. And also um, I wanted to pick the parts that I think are most beneficial that we can learn from that we can take and discuss. Um, there's a he has a, a whole uh, a whole thing on the differences, the biological differences between men and women, and you know he talks about how men are often driven to uh, leadership roles because they are willing to take an uncomfortable job. And, um, I don't know that I, one, I don't know that I necessarily agree with all of that. I don't even necessarily agree with everything I just read, but I, the, the, uh, that's a, that's, I think that's a whole, that's a way more dicey subject. And the other thing is it would lead me into an entire discussion of the, you know, the victim mentality. And I, you know, I've had discussions with people, they, they call the, they'll email me privately or send me a telegram and they'll say, I want to make some money. I want to make some money in the tech industry. What can I do? And I tell them pretty much the same thing every time I say, look at software development, because oftentimes um, there are a number of different factors that lead to why people are unemployed. Okay? I get people that walk into my office a couple times a year and they walk in with their je- blue jeans around their butt and uh, they've never heard of a belt and they don't know how to they, they have a, t- you know, a stained T-shirt on with rips in it and they have a cap on crooked. And uh, and then they sit down in my office and they, they think they're going to work, you know, for my professional IT company. I mean, I, I, we have – whether we like it or not, our customers expect a certain image of professionalism to come out and work on your IT system. They expect a certain level of expertise and they expect that level of expertise to look a specific way. And I I don't want to have a discussion with people on whether that's right or that's wrong or that's a good thing or a bad – just that's the reality we live in. And so – if you don't know what a belt is and you don't know how to tuck your shirt in, and by the way, if that shirt you know is falling off of you, uh, we're not going to hire you here. I'm, you're welcome to take your freedom of expression and freedom of personality and go apply somewhere else. Be king of the fries for all I care, but you're not going to work here. Um, and so and as, and as I talk to some of these people, and uh, you know, I, I, you, know I, I, you know you start asking these questions, you know, have you showered in the last three days? That's something that will affect a job interview. Um, And I tell them the same thing. I say, look at software development because one of the nice things about software development, we live in 2017, and you can be the person you want to be. You can express yourself, dress the way you want, look the way you want, all of those things, and still make a decent living because you can work from home or you can work remotely. And um, I've still got an interview lined up with a gentleman. We haven't quite been able to make the schedules work, but you're going to hear it maybe even then in the next week. But he, this is a guy who literally taught himself how to develop databases off of YouTube videos. And he did it in just a couple of weeks, a couple of months really, and then got himself a job making $75,000 a year. Now, if, when I see people do that, and I've seen more than just him do it, he's just the fastest person I've ever seen done it and on the least budget because he was literally working at Walmart stocking produce and learning the stuff, you know on the weekends and at night falling asleep at his computer, working his tail off, but I watch people do that. And I watch people become the person they want to be. I watch people develop, live the life they want to lead, and then they work from home. So people tell me that they say, oh, how do I get started? I usually point them in software development, take a look at that stuff. And you know, the other nice thing about software development, you can get real world practice, real world feedback, develop real world skills without ever submitting a job resume. You know how you do that? GitHub, GitHub. You can go create a GitHub account. You go find a project that personally interests you and you can get started today, developing software. You can go contribute today on a software project or start your own. I don't care, but, uh, and the chat room's asking what, what did he learn? He learned, uh, he learned uh, Postgres, he learned SQL databases. And, uh, he taught himself by watching online tutorials on YouTube after his job at Walmart. As he fell asleep, and I, I, had the, I had the pleasant opportunity to spend a weekend with him, came out here, and uh, we talked about technology, and we hung out, and it was a great time. Um, but he is, he is truly an inspiration to people that feel stuck, because you're not stuck. You can move forward. It's just a lot of people don't know how, and that's one of the things that we try to tackle here on the Ask Noah show. People who are stuck, they want career advice, or they need help, and we are here to help. Eight five five four five zero 450 noaa 855-450-6624. I'm not saying it's easy to do. I'm not saying it doesn't require hard work. I'm not saying you don't give up sacrifice because that's the number one mistake I see people make. The number one mistake I see people make is they have this idea that they have to do everything on their terms and they will never have to make a sacrifice and they will never have to work a job they don't like. And that's just not reality. I own the company and I have to do things on a day-to-day basis that I don't like doing. I mean, less and less. I pay people now. But there is no job that anyone has ever done at all to speed technologies, up to and including taking the trash out on a weekly basis that I haven't done myself at one point. You have to make sacrifices. You will have to do uncomfortable things. You will have to make yourself miserable to a certain extent if you want to succeed. But if you pay that price, you can make a lot of money. And you can pay that price so that you'd never have to pay that price again. And uh, we had a caller that was, that was just calling. In. I was waiting for him to get screened. It looks like they dropped off, so we're not, <laughs> not going to be able to put him on. But I got time for one one or two more calls if you guys want to call in. 855-450-NOAA. It's 855-450-6624. Um, and yes, it, Postgres is very different from SQL, but the the uh, I, and I you'd have to ask him exactly what specific you know database system he's working on. But the reality is, SQL language is SQL language. I don't know a whole lot about it, but I know enough to know that if you learn one, you can pick up the other quickly enough. One if you you you, you develop MySQL and you sit down at Postgres, you'll be you sit down in a Postgres environment within a week or two, you can you can figure it out what the differences are, what the syntax differences are. At least that's what I'm told by the people that do it. Oh, um, well, there we go. Now Our caller's back. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, it's just it's very interesting. And so that that is what the message that I took from the a lot of what I was trying to take from the Google memo was that there people think they hit they hit barriers that they're not actually hitting, and I think a lot of that comes from a victim mentality. And I think we need to move past that. I think there are legitimate biases. I think there are legitimate problems in society. I think we need to have an open discussion. Myself included, I'm not exempt from this. I think we all have bias, and I think we have to discuss those. And I think that that open discussion is ultimately what's going to lead to a. Uh, oh, let's see here. Okay, uh, but yeah. So it, so anyway, yeah. Um, that's that's the Google memo. We're gonna have a link. The thing is, a lot of people are adding their own um, commentary onto the Google memo, and I'm not a big fan of that. I just I think the memo speaks well just on its own. You can read it in its plain form. And it seems like every site I go to wants to add their own commentary in there or intro it and then squeeze the memo in there and then get their ads in there. So we at the Ask Noah Show have linked you a full unadulterated copy in PDF. We have that link in the show notes. I highly recommend whether you agree with it or you disagree with it, read the memo, Um, read the unadulterated copy, keep a copy. Who knows? I don't think things really disappear these days and ages anymore, but, but yeah, So anyway, uh, this is the last week that we're going to do the show in this format. We're going to be making a couple changes, nothing drastically huge. We're going to try and include a little bit more email. I have intentionally not been uh, jumping on email lately because of uh – uh, be, well, be, because I'm trying to, to focus on phone calls, we're going to start moving that direction. I would never really got a good answer from YouTube, so we're probably going to be changing some of the music assets, and we're also going to incorporate somewhat of a pre recorded, pre show kind of a thing. Um, details on that are still being worked out. But last chance to offer any criticism, asknoashow.com. Click on the contact link, let us know. Blue Zero, I got about a minute and a half. Go. Hey, uh, I'm trying to
0: learn WordPress. No one, I've decided to tackle this by myself. You got any good recommendations, like, uh, for dummies or anything of that nature on WordPress?
1: Um, You know, I have, it's actually, it's funny, about the time that I started picking up on WordPress, Uh, A lot of my friends and colleagues started pushing me back off of WordPress and telling me to go to static content. So I've kind of backed down off of WordPress. My best suggestion is start with something like the DigitalOcean tutorial or the one-click installation. And you can start with plugins and templates. That's a really easy way to get kind of started. There's really nothing to do there. And then you can add things as you want, like maybe try and set up an e-commerce thing. I don't know exactly what you're trying to do with it. I assume some sort of a blog. No, social
0: media. Is uh, a business
1: website? Gotcha. Okay, yeah. I mean, that's that's what I would do. I would I would look at the plugin system and and add some of that. I would definitely try the the DigitalOcean one click installer. That seems to be a really simple way uh, to get started with. Um, it seems to be a really easy way to get started with uh, with uh, WordPress, and uh, so that's what I would give it a shot. Hey, guys, we need your help spreading the word of the show, AskNoahShow.com. That's the canonical resource for all of the resources on this show. There you can find downloads to past episodes. You can stream the show live. Uh, We have links to contact the show. Of course, you can email the show. uh, It's live at AskNoahShow.com. The show is live every Mondays at 6 p.m. Central, 6 to 7 p.m. Central, both at jblive.tv and streamed live on the air here in Grand Forks. Logos Radio, KEQQ 88.3 LPFM. And a huge thanks to all of the people that work so hard behind the scenes on this show. Uh, I cannot express my gratitude enough to people like Chris, who have time and time again put their effort and weight behind the show when, uh, when they certainly didn't have to, and, uh, and really let, let us take our own direction here at the Ask Noah show, not conform to some of the traditional standards that that have been implemented in the past. Uh, and uh, and that has been really great and and certainly very much appreciated. And of course, people like Rakai who work uh, time, and, you know, hours and hours and hours off the air to make this show what it is. And of course our producers who schedule guests and help me out with the show notes and stuff like that. And like after I'm done here, I'm jetting off in my car heading straight to the airport. So it's uh, really appreciated to have that help. Big thank you to Sarah, our call screener, Ben, our producer, and Rakai, our video editor. We'll hand you off to Crosspoint coming up next on Logos Radio, KEQQ, 88.3 LPFM, Grand Forks.